Whether disasters are happening on a global scale or in your personal sphere, these are difficult times that require prophetic insight from God in order to be at rest. This is Sam Solon inviting you to the continuing study of the book of Revelation. We'll continue to, to deconstruct Revelation 13 and we talked about those who dwell in the earth versus those who dwell in heaven and the significance of this is we see that the beast has absolute control over those who dwell on the earth, so much so that they eagerly follow the instruction to worship the beast. And we see further that the war is between those who dwell between the beast and those who dwell in heaven. I want to refocus on the word to dwell, to dwell, because of the uh, the wisdom, the insight uh, in that word as applied to Revelation 13, uh, speaking about those who dwell on the earth worshiping the beast versus the beast making war against those who dwell in heaven. I want to, I want to revisit that for just a moment before we go on uh, because I want to make the point, you see, that there are only two houses and they're really only ultimately two fathers because every reference to a house in Scripture is the reference to a father. So the importance of understanding the concept of dwelling or dwelling place and how that then defines the character of those who dwell in the one place or dwell in the other place those who either dwell in the house of God or those who dwell in the house of chaos, the house of darkness. Each one has a father and we want to now talk about that dwelling place by way of describing the characteristics of the father of each house because in a sense you're assembled to each house and in being assembled to each house you're assembled to the character of the father of the house. You're bearing the image and likeness of the father of whose house you're a member. Because this is the whole notion of being born and being born again. You're adopting the character of the father. So let's lay it out again. The word for uh, dwelling, to dwell, is the word, word I'll spell it for you, O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-E, O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-E, -E, uh, which is oikomene, oikomene, it's a feminine noun, uh, the present participle, uh, in the passive voice of 
oiko, O-I-K-E-O, oiko. The word oiko is the word to dwell, to inhabit. The word oikos, O-I-K-O-S, refers to a house, a house. Now, whenever we speak of a house, we're not talking about a building with a roof and support structures and how it's decorated. We're talking about a family, you know, the house of, and the following, following on the family name, all right? It is therefore, it denotes the inhabited earth. In most instances, this word, those who dwell in, is translated those who dwell in the world. So the 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 the, the in one of the meanings of the Greek term for earth, those who dwell on the earth, the word yia, yia, uh, which is um, y-a-i-a, yia, uh, it's also pronounced gia in the, in, in the Greek. It has multiple meanings. One of the meanings, for example, is arable land. Uh, another is the ground. Um, yet another is the mainland as opposed to sea or water. So those are meanings of the word ia or gia. But one of the meanings is the earth as a whole as it relates to the concept of an earthly nature. So for example, Christ has come from heaven and he is uh, he has a heavenly nature but whoever is of an earthly nature is living in opposition to Christ so a fifth meaning is like a country a land etc so those who dwell in heaven dwell in the economy, dwell in the reality of the Father's house, the heavenly Father's house. All right, you see the connection? Those who dwell in heaven have a Father who is in heaven. Hence we pray, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to my father and your father. Listen to this from the book of uh, um, first, uh, uh, second, second Corinthians, or First Corinthians, the 15th chapter. It says the following, The first man, Adam, was of the earth, 
made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Now, this is sufficiently uh, significant that I want to read a little bit more on this principle of the first and the second. So we'll start at verse 47 um, in, uh, in the, and the reading is 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start at verse 7. Uh, actually, ver- uh, I'm sorry, verse 46. It speaks of a natural order and a spiritual order. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. So he's telling us an order of appearing. The natural comes before the spiritual. The first man, in in light of that principle then, the first man was made of earth, was of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The carnal man, the unspiritual mind, cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit because it is rooted in in the carnal, in the earthly, in the sensual, in the devilish, as the basis of its understanding and interpretation. So uh, just to to go on a little bit further, the carnal man cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You know how it switched very quickly from uh, physical to spiritual, from natural to, 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 to supernatural, from carnal to spiritual, to, from corruptible to incorruptible. Fascinating. It's, it's about the house of your inhabitants. It's about an order of a house. You cannot prevail against the beast if you are in his house. Why? Because he's the father. Actually, the beast isn't the father. Satan is the father because Satan gives his power, his throne, and great authority to the beast. So whoever is the seed of the serpent, derived from that corrupt father, this obviously is a spiritual reference, is, a, is naturally in his house, bears the identity of that house. Similarly, 
whoever is born of God. That's why we have the whole concept of being born again. Because we were all subject to the kingdom of darkness. We were all the children of darkness. We were all the children of the evil one. When you're born into an environment that has been contaminated, you must be saved out of it. It was never, uh, the early thinkers on this issue were simply wrong. Some weren't born to be saved and others born to be lost. In Adam we all died. The message is how we are being saved out of. Not that we are predestined to be saved out of or to, be, uh, or to perish with. In Adam we all perished. The fallacy of that version of predestination advocated by Luther and Calvin suggests that we were born uh, with, in a state of neutrality. No, we weren't. We were born in Adam. And because Adam made himself subject to Satan, the descendants of Adam had to be redeemed out of that kingdom. That was the presumption of Satan when he tempted Jesus. His presumption was, fall down and worship me because I am the hegemonic ruler. I have total control over these systems which I have crafted based upon the, uh, the, the authority of Adam which I was able to seize from him by deception. That's why Jesus was the child of the Holy Spirit. That's even the principle of circumcision. The principle of circumcision, the removing of the foreskin of the male was to hold in place the principle that there was one who would be born to the woman. There would be one who would be born to the woman without the contamination of the foreskin, which is the reference to the flesh, the male foreskin, corrupting the seed of the man. Circumcision was a principle that God established with Abraham concerning his seed and the principle was to say to Abraham, in this, uh, in this covenantal relationship, you must keep in mind that the seed I am going to bring through your human lineage is not going to be contaminated by the flesh. It won't touch the flesh. The evidence of which is, I am going to have you uh, practice yourself and institute as a practice for, all, for your generations going forward until the seed comes. I'm going to institute that you, every male must, must have the foreskin removed 
so that the principle the principle remains a continuous principle and that is the, the foreskin must not touch, there's no possibility that the foreskin will touch the sperma. That's the meaning of the covenant of circumcision. It's the only covenant God entered into with Abraham, making Abraham, requiring something of Abraham. He was requiring this symbolic uh, reference holding in place by this principle which was symbolic in its reference, holding in place the understanding that out of Mary, a descendant of Abraham, although the human lineage is, uh, credits uh, Joseph, but the seed of Joseph, properly speaking, if Joseph, uh, if, if Abraham's natural, if, if the reference were that Jesus would come from Abraham's natural seed as opposed to what the Scriptures refer to as, quote, the seed of promise. The seed of promise is different from a natural seed. So although he comes out of a descendant of Abraham, the seed that produced him was not Abraham, was, was not Joseph. Abraham by extension through Joseph. That's why the Scriptures say, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. The seed was the seed of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Spirit begets Spirit, you see. The Holy Spirit worked a work of a new creation in the womb of Mary, bringing forth an incorruptible seed, ab initio, from the beginning. Now this was the seed, that's why God didn't say to Adam that your seed, Adam, will crush the head of the serpent. That's why He said, and the seed of the woman. It left, women typically do not produce seed, the incubate seed. So that's why the Scriptures referred to the seed of the woman. In the promise, it wasn't the seed of Adam, that would crush the head of the serpent. You know, the Bible is so precise. This is a term of art. It does not refer to the seed of Adam. It refers to the seed of the woman. Women do not produce seeds. Women produce an egg to be fertilized by the sperma. God established, as I have said, a new creation in the womb of the woman. 
she carried the seed that God had allowed by the Spirit to be deposited in her womb and so Jesus is a new creation. Now He was subject to every trial like as we are because He was not given to mimic our sinful nature, He was given to show us His spiritual nature. He came to represent the Father. So he said, I am going, upon the end of his life, he said, So I'm going to my Father and to your Father. And he taught his disciples how to pray in the fashion of our Father. Critically important because God understood the conflict of the end of the age between the sons of God and the children of the evil one. It was always going to be about humanity, not the seed of snakes and the seed of woman in a domesticated view. All humanity eventually would be divided into two categories, those who are born of the Spirit who are the dwelling place of God, who operate by the economy of the name of God and those who dwell in the earth by the sweat of their brow. The entire structure of the cosmos is predicated upon the assumption that you are going to be subject to capture on the basis of your economy you can't buy or sell. So those who dwell in heaven live by the manner, the word that comes from God. By that their epistemology, their faith, faith being the term pistis, is established. The foundation of who they are and what they believe in the dark of night or at noonday, in the depths of sorrow and disorientation or on the mountaintop of hope and encouragement. This is their, their epistemology will be that they trust God. They're the sons of God. They're from the oikos of God, from the house of God. They are part of the oikonomia of God. They dwell in heaven. They dwell in heavenly places, to quote the scriptures, in Christ Jesus. That's why you're assembled to Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12. And that's what it means to be a son of God. As such, you are the natural target of the blasphemous words against God because the words against, blasphemies against God are against His name, the power of His name, the, the power that supports the kingdom of heaven. Go in my name because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me uh, or as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. In other words, whatever authority the Father gave me, I'm releasing you to function in that authority. So we're under the Father, we're in Christ, 
and we have His name upon our foreheads. That means what's going on in your mind has been renewed because your mind has been renewed. Renewed away from the carnal, the sensual and the devilish which makes you subject to the evil one. So it is metaphorical when it says the name of the Father is written upon their foreheads. What that means is their mindsets have been renewed to embrace in full the character of God. So in that sense, they represent the illumination that comes to mankind through Christ put on display by the body of Christ. And when in the next, uh, in the next broadcast, that's what I want to take you into, the illumination, how we are the representation of Christ in exact representation on the earth and how that contrasts with the man of lawlessness, how that contrasts with the antinomian, uh, nomos being law, uh, the antinomian being the lawless one. And what are the characteristics of the lawless one? What makes the lawless one so thoroughly subject to the, the attacks of the evil one? What makes human beings who are in the house of lawlessness as opposed to the house of God, the kingdom of heaven, the peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit, evincing the character of God. These are about juxtapositions based upon characteristics. The Son is the character of the Father. He is the imprint, not merely the icon but the character, the way that the Father's image has been imprinted on the Son. But these again, at the end of this broadcast, I'm throwing many things at you. But in summary, what I want to say very briefly is that the whole concept here in Revelation 13 are of two houses in conflict, the house of earth and the house of heaven, the dwellers on the earth being persons of the cosmos and the dwellers in heaven being persons who are in Christ. And they both have identifying, distinct identifying characteristics because they're both distinctly, distinctively characterizing who their Father is. If you don't understand this, you simply cannot deconstruct the meaning of 666. And in fact, people approach it more in the guesswork of saying, now what historical figure looks like the Antichrist? But they don't drill down into it to ask the question, what are the characteristics that we're looking for? Because the actual number isn't all that important, it's what it symbolizes that's critically important. I'm Sam Solon and we will continue to deconstruct this principle. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.